This is Dr. Trina Coleman, and you're listening to Beyond the Classroom. This week, my guest is Dr. Claudia Rankins, and she's a program officer in the Directorate for Education and Human Resources at the National Science Foundation. At the National Science Foundation, she manages the historically Black colleges and universities undergraduate program and the Centers for Research Excellence in Science and Technology. Dr. Rankins and I also share one thing. We both attended Hampton University for our graduate degree work, and we both got our degrees in nuclear theory. So I'd like for you to welcome and listen to Dr. Rankins and all of the knowledge she's about to impart on us about NSF funding, HBCUs, and how they're doing in STEM, and all types of things related to that and all the great work she's doing at NSF. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rankins. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Trina, and uh, thank you for the shout out to our alma mater that has <laughs> moved up in the Carnegie classification rankings, the doctoral institution. That's um, right. This week, the announcement came out. Yes, yes. so I'm, I'm very proud of Hampton University and the state of the union at HBCUs in STEM is looking positive as far as I'm concerned. So um, you mentioned the two programs I run at uh, NSF Trina, and mostly I'm involved with the HBCU UP program, Historically Black Colleges and Universities Undergraduate Program, where we focus on strengthening STEM undergraduate education and research as well, and we do that in a number of ways by supporting individual, individual faculty through research grants. So, that, so those are smaller grants, like $300,000, um, and they're in all NSF-supported areas of research. We also support departments to achieve whatever goal they need to move STEM education further. So it could be a new program, a new minor, a new lab, new teaching strategies. Uh, we support research in the area of broadening participation. And then we have larger, more institutional kind of projects. We call the first type the implementation projects. They are like between one and $3 million over five years to really give the HBCUs whatever they need. They can propose whatever it is they need to strengthen STEM undergraduate education and research. So they can directly support students they can support faculty, they can again expand their offerings. And if you'd like, I give you, remind me to talk about Harris Stowe State University, uh, if I forget to give you the example of what impact this can have. And then our newest um, opportunity that I'm really most proud of are the $9 million broadening participation research centers. So it, has been bothersome to me that research on HBCUs was often done at institutions that are not HBCUs. And these so-called experts on HBCUs were not housed at HBCUs. Isn't that so still I the thought, case? Yes. <laughs> and I don't want to name names because I've been banned from Twitter <laughs> because I named names once so. Um, so I thought my response would be, 
uh, to have this announcement for these $9 million centers where a group of HBCUs, and they can partner with non-HBCUs, can propose what it is they want to study about what works in STEM education at HBCUs. So I'm proud to say we have two such centers. There's one uh, collaboration of University of Virgin Islands with mm -hmm. North Carolina A&T and some non-HBCU partners, and they focus on leadership at HBCUs at our level. And then uh, Morehouse uh, College has a center where they're um, studying STEM identity mm. uh, of undergraduate students. So that's sort of in a nutshell, the HBCU UP program. We have $35 million and it sounds like a lot, but if you do the math, $35 million spread over 100 institutions annually gives each institution about $350,000 on the average. Wow. And that is not enough. It's not. I was about to ask you, why is the <laughs> amount so small? Well, uh, this program actually started out at $5 million uh, wow. 20 years ago. It's congressionally mandated, and every year they have been pushing for more and more funding for HBCU. So the funding has increased, and last year, um, Congress has given NSF or tasked NSF to spend an additional $10 million on HBCUs. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, it still is not enough. Now, I'm not saying this is all HBCU faculty have available to them. NSF has a $6 billion budget mm -hmm. and over 300 programs. And you can apply to any program. But the one that specifically focuses on HBCUs and their needs and their challenges and takes into account that their institutions that have anywhere from like 100 students to 10,000 students. Mm -hmm. They're private, they're public, they're small, they're large, they're research intensive, they're non-classified. Mm -hmm. And each institution has different needs. And so to be able to focus on that, this program is the only one. And I think it's the only one at any federal agency that still funds HBCU solely. So other agencies have programs that fund on uh, focus on minority-serving institutions, mm -hmm. but not on HBCU specifically. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's in in this political climate getting a little bit harder and harder to justify why certain institutions should have their own program. There has been a lot of pushback. Hmm. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess I would ask you, well, I won't ask you why there's pushback, but I will ask you how do you guys uh, respond to the pushback to make sure that things don't get so, uh, rewound, so to speak? So the, the pushback happens actually in Congress itself and at the level even higher than that, where the thought is that it's discriminatory to have funds set aside for one type of institution. So there sort of has been 
that talk that that's not legal. But there are enough people in Congress who are from states where a significant number of HBCUs who have kept the conversation going the other way and have protected this program. Mm -hmm. And actually, this program is one of very few that is written in the actual NSF budget as a line item. So typically, NSF, it says, you know, the, the Directorate for Mathematical and Physical Sciences gets X billion of dollars. And then that directorate can decide which programs get how much. But in my division, Education and Human Resources, there are some programs that Congress, Congress specifies the amount and protects us. So it's the HBCR program. It's the program for tribal colleges. You may have heard of the Lewis Stokes Mm -hmm. uh, program Alliance for Minority Participation and also the Robert Noyce program for teachers. So there are some protected programs by Congress, but they are being scrutinized every year. And so it's it's doubly important. And I see that as part of my responsibility to ensure that, you know, I spent the money wisely. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of this joint responsibility I have, along with the faculty who receives the funding, that we are good stewards of this money because let one thing go wrong. Right. And everybody you know, is and suffering. I'll, hell will break loose. I don't know if I can say you hell on say your that. program. <laughs> <laughs> you said it. So, you <laughs> so, you know, I've been very careful and, and, and when we have, when I have meetings uh, with the faculty who they're called principal investigators once they get funded, you know, we talk about those issues, how you have to be extra careful to make sure you do what you propose to do. Mm -hmm. And it is further uh, STEM education and it is to further research and it generates new knowledge, uh, all those things that we uh, require of an NSF proposal. Mm -hmm. so, right. Um, yeah. Back when we were students, if you recall, STEM wasn't a thing. <laughs> there was a <laughs> thing called STEM. So right. when, I'm not sure exactly when STEM started being a thing. And, you know, how long has it been since you've had to, or you guys started using STEM as a thing when it came down to setting up um, RFPs or programs or whatever? So I started at NSF in 2008 and the acronym STEM was used then, but shortly before that, it was actually SMET. <laughs> they had it turned around. Yes. -E <laughs> and I guess it was final. It was maybe, I don't know, 15 or so years ago when somebody said, it's just too much to always say science, engineering, and math, and um, and and the acronym, you know, came about, and it's been about ever since. And um, you know, we're trying to make it a thing. And what I see now with students, and I don't interact as much as I used to with students, so I sort of do it more indirectly through the faculty, but what I see in proposals and what I hear from students is that 
they do want to be involved in the STEM disciplines, but they also want to be involved and have what they do make their communities better. So they're much more, I think, community service oriented than we were, because I think when we came through, especially if you were um, black, if you were a woman, if you were a woman and you were black, hmm. you were just fighting so hard to find your space yes. in this thing called STEM that you didn't have time to think about how will this benefit my people, my community. Right. Uh, now I, I see we've gotten a little bit beyond that and we've become a little bit more inclusive, even though we still don't make things easy um, for some populations. But the younger people are really just much more community oriented. And they say, okay, if I major in physics, then how does that translate? Mm -hmm. uh, to what I do. <laughs> Nobody <And> understands. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually been a good thing, you know. So a lot of the projects I see now involve uh, projects. You know, I can, at Virginia Union, for example, in the physics department, they're doing measurements of the, the, the air, the pollution in the mm -hmm. city. Okay. Um, and, and monitoring that. Um, and they're going out and, you know, doing air, um, water quality um, kind of measurements in, in the inner city. I see students who want to be involved in agriculture, like urban agriculture, uh, through the project. So there are a lot of um, exciting things to get students involved in STEM. And then, of course, Trina, there, then there will always be the nerds like you and me who just want to do science for the sake of doing science, right? Exactly. We like to sit down and solve a few math problems <laughs> and think we've accomplished something. <laughs> we um, have. Those people will always be there, but there's not enough of a critical mass, right? right. Um, of, of, so we, we have to be, we have to reach out and be more inclusive to the kind of students that we used to not think were potential STEM majors. Mm -hmm. You know, we used to think if you want to major in STEM, you got to have a 3.5 GPA in high school at least and come prepared with calculus and have taken uh, already a physics class in high school. But, but the reality of high school these days is that's not happening unless you're at one of those, you know, wonderful high schools that mm -hmm. are located in the suburbs of this country mm -hmm. that are not accessible to our students. So the reality is many students come to college, particularly to smaller institutions and HBCUs, and then we say they are underprepared because they are not what we would call STEM ready. Right. And so we don't have anything, I don't think we have enough in place to draw them into STEM because what they don't need is to be told this is not for you. Right. Right. They need the opposite. They need to find a pathway in. And I also see a lot more of that happening. A funny story about is not for you. I don't know if I've ever told you this one before, but my high school guidance counselor told me that she didn't think I was 
prepared to take advanced science courses? Here I am. <laughs> well advanced, <laughs> way, way, way to the top of the food chain of academics. So if, for her to if I heard that story once, <laughs> I've heard it many times. Wow. It's unfortunate though, because I could have gone along with that mentality and believed her. That and I so many students do. Yeah, they do, unfortunately. They do. Yeah. And um, yeah. it's just wonderful that there are advocates like you out there to try to make a difference with respect to uh, getting our students at HBCUs uh, engaged and providing resources to have these centers set up. And um, one of the things I wanted to uh, also mention and talk to you about is um, entrepreneurship. Students nowadays are not, once again, I mean, millennials are in a different space than we are. There's also not just a push for STEM literacy, so to speak. There's also a new wave of entrepreneurship at a younger age and um, being able to take one's gifts and apply them to their own business and become their own boss and be innovative and do those types of things. That would be one of the things that you would consider a broader impact? Or would mm, I, I consider that an intellectual merit as well. And let, let me give you an example. Okay. So some of these ideas catch on fairly slowly, right? Um, mm -hmm. Because the, the, the faculty writing these projects are still sort of more our age than, than the younger people. But I funded a really exciting project at North Carolina Central University mm -hmm. that combines STEM entrepreneurship and law. Ah. So these are STEM majors as undergraduates they um, major in whatever, engineering, physics, math, but then they also take courses in entrepreneurship. They have like a, a course where they actually are coming up with a, uh, something, you know, um, to, to sell or to, or some idea for the next step mm -hmm. um, to produce a product. I was searching for that word. Um, and at the same time, for those students who think one pathway is law school and patent law and entrepreneur law, um, mm -hmm. whatever, you know, it, it all sort of links, but having that STEM background, they are also providing an avenue for those students to have that as an option in it, because we usually always only think, you know, so I know, Trina, you and I know, Students don't major in physics because they don't know what the next step is. They think the next step for you is you can either become a physics teacher in high school mm -hmm. or you can go to graduate school and get your PhD in physics and become a physics professor. But right. when you look right. at who has a physics PhD and what these people do, <laughs> they're just about all over the place. All right? over the place, yes. <laughs> they, they, and many of them are entrepreneurs. Many of them are not in physics. Um, but the skills they obtained while physics majors, the way you learn to think, um, have suited them well. So yes. 
uh, we have to make sure we give students different pathways and that entrepreneurship is one of them because you're right, you know, there's this whole gig economy now and that's mm -hmm. what people are interested in doing. They're not necessarily interested in working for someone. Um, and a STEM background serves you, you probably know that very well, serves you extremely well. You know, I see it with my son. He, he has um, a master's degree in aerospace engineering and then decided not to get his PhD in aerospace engineering, but in evaluation and assessment. And he now has, you know, a small company where he does consulting. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean that the time he spent getting his degree in aerospace engineering was in any way wasted. I mean, all those skills serve him extremely well. Right. And we bring something as scientists and engineers into these other fields. Right. And I was going to mention that to you as well. We do bring something, skills that are required, skills that bring value to organizations. But one of the things I want to talk to you about also, and I noticed that you have the term human resources under your, your directorate at NSF, but human resources departments in general don't understand the value that a person with a credential like mine or yours can bring to an organization overall. They don't get it. And that keeps a lot of people from being employed at a place that they may be a perfect fit for. They haven't gotten past that HR uh, step, hurdle, whatever, to get to the point where their credentials are in front of the right person. So I, I need to clarify something here, Trina. We have at NSF an HR department, uh -huh. uh, and they're called HRM, right? That would okay. do what you just said. Okay. Um, and so, unfortunately, our division has that same name. We mm. call the Division of Human Resource Development, which I think is quite an unfortunate name. And what this tries to convey is that we are funding institutions and faculty and students in at places where they are underrepresented and in disciplines where they are underrepresented to develop the nation's workforce and such and and and, and the human resource potential mm -hmm. so it's one of those government names you know it <laughs> um, sounds like I, work it sounds yeah, like a job and, to I, me. Yeah. And I really, but I really don't like to look at what we do in terms of preparing the next generation of this country's workforce. I mean, that's mm -hmm. sort of an end goal. Mm -hmm. What I'm more interested in is that each young person, particularly black and brown young men and women, get the opportunity to to do what they want to do, to attend the college they want to attend, to major the discipline they want to major in, and to be successful in that discipline. Then this other stuff will happen, right? The workforce development and all. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's to me sort of at the core of why I get out of bed every morning. I could be retired now. I'm old enough. I got my Medicare card. 
um, why I get out of bed every morning and come in here and work till seven, eight o'clock? Because I want to make sure that with the limited resources I have, but 35 million isn't, isn't jump, jump change. Um, it gets to those places and institutions where the most students can benefit from that. And that these institutions do it the right way. Because even at HBCUs, we are, we are known to provide the caring environment and you know the home away from home. We don't always get it right. And even there, we uh, are guilty of some of the same things they do at majority institutions. And by that, I mean, we use the same language to describe our students. This is like one of my pet peeves. Why do we have to call our students underprepared and underachieving and right. underrepresented? It's how it's all this negative connotation, right? Mm -hmm. Is there some way we can lay the blame not on the student for coming not prepared? but on where they came from, the high school that didn't prepare them. Mm -hmm. uh, so there have to be better words we're using. Then I also don't think we're doing enough. We say we take the students where they are and get them to where they need to be, but we do make it often more cumbersome than it has to be. And you know, I told you before we started this interview, I want to talk about math a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's my example. So if you're not ready to take calculus in your freshman year, and you want to major in physics or engineering, you're behind. Already. Those four right. years are out the door, maybe five years are out the door. So currently what we do is, first of all, we blame the student for it not the circumstances that they came from. And then we make them sit through intermediate algebra, college algebra, pre-calculus, trigonometry, or semesters until they get to calculus. The students have all seen that information but forgotten it or they were never taught well. Meanwhile, they're in their junior year and still are not in calculus. And maybe they had a bad teacher along the way and even didn't pass one of the classes. So they're even further behind. And now they're just discouraged and they're going, giving up on, on this. When all it really takes is some sort of intervention. We bring them in maybe in the summer or we bring them in their first semester and we catch them up in math. We take them where they are and we find out what they don't know and we teach it to them. Mm -hmm. And rather than complaining as math teachers, or oh, they don't know how to do fractions, we teach them how to do fractions, right? Of course, they are to know how to do fractions when they get to college, but they don't. Right. So teach them. But exactly. don't make them take a whole class right. of remedial something, something. Right. You know, streamline it through. Use technology. Exactly. Uh, That's what I was about to say. I'm building an online STEM platform for that particular reason. Oh, okay. So that those students, because I see it as parents spending money to pay for courses that their child already took in high school and exactly. high school that they should already know. And they shouldn't have to spend nine to $1,200 
for a course nope. that A, they already took, they didn't learn it well, whatever. Right. But B, there's a viable alternative for a fraction of the cost. And when you start sending students to summer school, you're paying for a room or an apartment, you're spending money on food, pocket change, tuition, and airplane tickets. <laughs> and then three weeks later, you got to send them back. And Trina, in addition to that, it's not only that cost, but it's the cost of you spending an extra year or two in college, exactly. not earning money, add that up over a lifetime, you know. Right. Um, um, that's an immense amount, and, and with the cost of college these days, no parent can afford to have their kid in college an extra year because right. of the math class that put them behind. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I speak from experience. When, when I was uh, the department chair of physics at Hampton um, mm -hmm. for a few years, we instituted um, something in physics now, it was a little time consuming and we had to work a little bit at it. But what we did, we let each incoming freshman start with the physics class they needed to take. And then we met with them every week to teach them the math they needed to know. So if they didn't know how to take a derivative in calculus, we taught them right quick. If they didn't know what a vector was, we taught them. At the same time, they could go through their math classes at their own pace or whatever the university made them do, right? Mm -hmm. So they were typically like in the calculus-based physics class and maybe in college algebra. But we made sure they knew enough of the calculus to pass the calculus-based physics class. Mm -hmm. Because you don't need to have had four semesters of calculus, calculus. to pass <laughs> physics one, exactly. you know. You just need certain skills. Yep. Not only did the students do extremely well, but we retained all of our physics majors. That's great. The year prior to that, seven out of eight physics majors left the major in the first year. Mm -hmm. The year we started this, we all retained them at least through the freshman year. And out of the, I remember that, there were six young women in that class. Four of them have their PhDs now. Wow. That's, That's a amazing. lot of black women with PhDs. Yes, it in is. Physics. Because as you know, we don't have too many. No, I, no, no, we don't. But <laughs> we're working on it. We're working on yeah. it. And um, yeah. it's great to be able to have resources like you. And um, having social media has been quite helpful to help us connect with each other. And I uh, think so, too bring the the ones that are in different locations to the point where they can find us and and it, know it, that we are it, out there yes it establishes communities right and and sometimes you know i'm, I'm very active on twitter and <laughs> some people complain twitter is so mean but it's who you surround yourself with on twitter i don't follow very many people you know mm -hmm. i follow typically the young women scientists. Mm -hmm. um, and so then you sort of are in this space, right? And then others join and find you, like you said. So one day somebody may be really discouraged about mm -hmm. something that happened to them. 
and then everybody sends encouraging messages and hopefully you know younger younger students will will find us on that space to know we're here we made it and we're here to help you yes. because the worst thing i sometimes see women who are my generation do is um they have this attitude i have to fight so hard to get where i am and fight you know the system and fight the power and all mm -hmm. um and now i'm gonna make it hard for them too because how come they should have it so easy that hurts me to the core when i see women like that yeah that's that's wrong and i mentor anybody who needs mentoring and i'll tell you the most awesome feeling that that solidified or you know cemented that commitment that i made was going to one of um our conferences uh the national society for black physicists and being recognized by name when people saw me some of those young girls why oh wow you're trina coleman i was like wow they know <laughs> who i am and that's happened to me at more than one venue and I'm like, wow, this is pretty awesome. This is an awesome responsibility to be a role model in, in a field like physics and to have so few uh, students of color that are doing any work in STEM or have any role models that have done work in STEM and uh, being successful at it if they're interested. And, and keeping them interested is the thing that is the challenge because everybody's not going to be interested everybody's not going to do well though we can help them some people just are never going to understand what an integral is and so <laughs> you know that's just the reality of and not it. everybody needs to be in stem either right exactly. i mean there's so many other wonderful mm -hmm. uh fields you can pursue but if you want to be in stem mm -hmm. we are to make sure right. that you can and Trina, you're sort of a legend. You probably are the first woman with a PhD in theoretical nuclear physics. Second. 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 Okay, see? Shirley Jackson. Oh, Shirley Jackson. Look, look at you. You are Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. And it's like I always mention her name, and she's, I've never met her. I've never met her. You do have to meet her. And by the way, our alma mater produced at one time a lot of black women physicists and produced the first two experimental nuclear physicists, mm -hmm. Wendy Hinton and Alicia and Alto. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We have history. So, we, we, doubled, yes, we, we doubled the numbers. If you look at some of the data that um, AIP has, and I know I'm mm -hmm. a little off topic for our listeners, listeners, we're going to bring it back around. Um, okay. <laughs> if you look at the year where we started awarding degrees, you'll see that spike. Yeah. You'll see the spike. But, um, but it's really not off topic, uh, Trina, mm -hmm. because we're talking about HBCUs. We are. And, and what HBCUs do for black students. But not only for black students, because let me share my personal experience with mm -hmm. graduate school. Um, oh, you're not black? I'm it, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> in the early 80s, I went to, and I'm going to say it, Old Dominion University, mm -hmm. got a master's degree in statistics, and I was going to go for my PhD in statistics. 
And I took all of my coursework and, you know, was at the point looking for an advisor. And I was told um, nobody in this department will work with you. So they were all men. Mm. The only woman had just not gotten tenure. And they said nobody will work with you and be your PhD advisor. Wow. They said that be another woman who was in the problem. So we both left. Uh, there was no, there was nothing we could do, right? Right. To stay around. If nobody becomes your advisor, advisor. you can't get your PhD. Mm -hmm. So at the time then, I started teaching math at Hampton University. I was a lecturer at the time. And when Hampton mm -hmm. started its PhD program in physics, my background, mind you, was in math. I never took even calculus-based physics. I went to see Dr. Venable, who was at the time the dean of the graduate college, and mm -hmm. said, and you, and you know him well, I want to be in your program. And he was so encouraging. And then I went to the department, and there was Dr. Warren Buck, you remember Warren. Mm -hmm. And I said to Warren, I need somebody to work with me. All I can do is math. I'm not even good at computers. I need like a topic where I can sit at home and work out the math and it still is physics. And he found something for me to do. And everyone was so encouraging, not only the black professors who were there. Um, as you well know, we had professors from all over the world. Uh, right. One of my favorite uh, professors was from Argentina. But the environment at, at, at an HBCU, where you don't have to, all you have to worry about is your classes and doing well. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about, and, and one of our classmates, you know Michael Watson, who is now? Yes, I this? do. Mm -hmm. I interviewed him for a project. He said it so well. He said when he was at a white institution, every day he had to put this shield of armor around him. And every time he misstepped or didn't do well on a test, or something went wrong, he felt like it reflected on not only him, but all black students. Right, right. Once he went to Hampton, he could get rid of that, that shield. And he also didn't have to sense, he said, who in the room, you know, mm -hmm. looks at you in a weird way. He said, once that was gone and you can concentrate on your studies. Yes. He said it was so freeing for him. Yes. And that, I think, is at the core of, we always talk about what is it, some people call it the secret sauce, I don't like that term, of HBCU. <laughs> but it's that we provide that environment at HBCUs for you to be you. If you mess up, it's because you messed up. Mm -hmm. right? right. And that's, um, that is correct. And it's also, you know, kind of like people standing around waiting for you to mess up in certain mm -hmm. situations. If you're right. in another type of environment, they might yeah. even help you mess up, stick their foot out and trip you, you know, yeah. and then you exactly. fall and they're like, look, you fell down. Well, you tripped me. Well, you didn't see me trip you. So I didn't trip you, but you really did, you know, those types of things. And that leads into, oh, I need to tell our listeners, listeners, by the way, this is such an engaging conversation. You're listening to Beyond the Classroom, and our guest today is Dr. Claudia Rankins, and she's a program manager for 
programs at the National Science Foundation that serve HBCUs. And um, uh, Dr. Rankins, one of the questions I want to ask you about or just state my opinion on is the notion of bridge programs. Mm -hmm. Bridge programs in general, as I know them, are programs that tend to serve the uh, air quotes underrepresented or underserved that need to have their skills bolstered is the term I'll use in math or science before they go into an advanced degree program. Now, hmm. are there bridge programs for other people? I cannot believe that brown and underrepresented and minority and black students are the only ones that are not as prepared all the time. Tell me what the bridge is called for the other people. Because I've never heard of that one. You just heard me take a deep breath. Uh, yes, I did. Um, I just want to give you an example. This was again when I was the chair of the Department of Physics at Hampton. Mm -hmm. The best student we had, and she was really good, and she now has a PhD, somehow got convinced by some institution other than Hampton University and other than me that she needed to spend a bridge year between getting her bachelor's degree and starting her, her PhD uh, because she had been at an HBCU and probably the courses weren't as rigorous as they needed to be. It was she later admitted a wasted year of her time she did not need it she was as prepared leaving hampton as she was after that bridge year of course um, she was in the same class as another student who went to howard to get her phd she also now has her phd in physics the girl went to Howard and they told her, do you think you have to sign up for a senior level quantum mechanics class? She said, no, I took quantum mechanics from Dr. Rankins at Hampton. I'm ready for the next class. And you know, <laughs> she passed the class and passed the qualifiers and got her PhD. So it's, it's, it's all about how the institutions look at you. So there are some institutions that convince you that when you come from a smaller institution, and particularly an HBCU, you need that bridge year. Now granted, there are smaller institutions where they maybe are not teaching all of the courses you needed to you know, take the, the rigorous courses uh, for the next level. But it's again like the thing we talked about with math. Do you now need a whole year to catch up? Right. Or can you go and take two of the courses that count and catch up on the one class you need to catch up on? And why are we separating you? Why exactly. do you have to be in this labeled. separate track and labeled that's as the, the bridge student? The bridge kids. Yeah. They, yeah, yeah the bridge kids. Yeah. And so I don't see a lot of white students being in the bridge programs. I think when they come in, they get quietly put in the class they need to be in and they go about their business, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and, and 
they get caught up. Mm -hmm. It's the reality of life that we are not always as prepared as we need to be. When I started my PhD program, I had to take four undergraduate classes first, but nobody called it a bridge year or put me in a separate track or right. said that I couldn't take the math class that I was prepared for. So it's, it's all, I think it all ties in with the way we label students. We make them feel like they're sort of second class STEM mm -hmm. citizens. Mm -hmm. And what that does to your mind is devastating because you start doubting yourself. Um, and then next you know you are not doing well. Right. So um, my best advice to undergraduate students is when you decide to go to graduate school to shop around, to really, really shop around, what graduate school is the best fit for me? And that necessarily doesn't mean it has to be the top ranked graduate school in your field. That may not be the best fit for you if they don't really want you there, right? right. Exactly. If they only want you there to check the box. Okay, we have mm -hmm. a black student. Mm -hmm. um, find uh, because I've seen so many students go into PhD programs. The very best and brightest students go into these prestigious PhD programs and not do well, and now not have PhDs. And I see so many students who were maybe not even quite as accomplished and promising going into the right environment, who now have PhDs and have jobs and rule the world. Mm -hmm. um, so we just have to be really careful, I think, how we approach this whole thing of trying to achieve equity and diversity and inclusion. And that's probably a topic for another show, Trina. Which you are welcome but to come back and talk about. <laughs> <laughs> because diversity is not enough, right? It's not enough to check the box and say, I have one of each. And then providing equality is not enough. Just because you give everybody the same equipment, the same textbook, is still not enough, right? If we are not talking about social justice issues, issues of equity, issues of inclusion, um, we are not going to ever move forward in being more inclusive in STEM. Right. But and getting you, it right. You know what's interesting to me is the fact that you and I were in a very diverse environment mm -hmm. at Hampton, at an HBCU. But we didn't have those issues that that students at predominantly white institutions may have as far as the lack of the of inclusion where the African American student or the Hispanic or Latina are let me say it right, I'll say Hispanic because <laughs> I don't want to mess this <laughs> thing up. But the non white students mm -hmm have an environment that may be may be called inclusive, but they may not feel included. We didn't mm -hmm. have yeah. that yeah. issue yeah. at Hampton. Everybody worked together, Vietnamese, uh, Korean, white, black, Japanese, Chinese, whoever was there, we worked together. There was no animosity or 
racial tension or any of that. We were all in the grad program together. And I think that's the difference that the HBCUs make. They have been inclusive from day one. Now they were established to serve the African American community at a time when black students could not go to white schools. But they, they wouldn't allow them to were, go. The law right, stated that right. they should have been allowed to go to any school. Right. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. I, I, I don't know what I just said, but that's what I meant. <laughs> yeah. But the HBCUs never excluded anyone. Right. I mean, uh, there's a history of them uh, including American Indian students. You know, we have the history of Hampton. Mm -hmm. um, any white student who wanted to come to an HBCU was always welcome. Mm -hmm. And I was at Hampton University for 22 years in capacities, student, as a professor, as a dean. I was the only white dean at the time. Oh, there was Dr. Whitney, too. Mm -hmm. um, I never felt different, uh, excluded from anything, um, treated any differently. I always felt I was part of the family. You know, we, we call it the Hampton family. And I think that's where HBCUs are different than other institutions. We welcome everyone. Not everybody wants to come there, but right. we welcome them. Exactly. And, and um, we treat them the same. The same. And, and others, I mean, even the students rally around the students. White, yeah. black, whatever. You're, if you're a student, at that university, you're part of the family. You're, right. <laughs> we, right. We are one, so to speak. Yep. The, um, the other thing I did want to talk about with you is the fact that um, this links to the bridge program and the, not the underpreparedness that is perceived to be from a student from an HBCU uh, going into a program at a non-HBCU. Um, I just wanted to make this point to people, and this is not to say that professors that are trained or taught at HBCUs are less than adequate, but what I will say is that there are only, I think, four PhD programs in physics, for example, at HBCUs. So yes. going into a physics program, even at an HBCU, the probability of you having a professor from an HBCU is near zero. <laughs> so those <laughs> professors come from other places. So what you're saying is that geography dictates what type of student you're going to be as opposed yep. to academics. So your thoughts on that statement? Oh, hmm. Because, you know, we had great professors. <laughs> I mean, they came from everywhere, Stanford, MIT, wherever whatever and right. they were right. awesome and we had great researchers to work with we had great facilities we had nasa we had uh, jefferson lab and we just had access to a lot of accomplished scientists men and women so that doesn't mean by any means we probably had an advantage because we had access to so many of those types of people but at the same time, looking at the fact that we went to Hampton, some people will automatically assume that our degree isn't as valuable as one from a non-Hampton. <laughs> so that's a very interesting point you make, uh, Trina. And so I have two things to say about that. 
was sitting in the room with a colleague, you know, who touted her Harvard degree, Harvard degree. And I said, it's funny though, we have the same job now. We make the same amount of money, right? <laughs> so <laughs> Hampton degree, Harvard degree, <laughs> we ended up in the same place. Isn't that lovely? Um, but there is that perception, even at the undergraduate level, that if you go to an HBCU, you don't get an education that is as great as if you went to a big name university. Um, there's that perception that if I got my PhD, say from in physics from MIT or Stanford, it would count more than if I get my PhD from, from Hampton University. Um, and it goes back to what I was saying, which place is a fit for you? So for some people can take it, they can go into a hostile environment and no matter what, they can make it and they, get, they end up having a PhD from Stanford uh, or from MIT or from the, the bigger places. Um, it's not an environment for everyone. So graduate school is already so hard. Why make it harder on you? Why, I, I don't get for the life of me, why don't you want to be in an environment that teaches you what you need to know, prepares you for where you need to go, and at the same time doesn't destroy your soul? Right. I don't get that. And the HBCU is a place where they do not destroy your soul, unlike some other places. Now, once you have a PhD, you know, people may look a little bit if at Hampton or Harvard, but you got a PhD in nuclear physics, right. you're going to get a job, okay? <laughs> or you're going to go where you want to go. Um, there is then no more distinction, I think. Um, you just have to prove yourself, right? Yeah. I mean, you have to fight maybe a little bit to get in. But you learned the exact, we learned the exact same E&M from the exact same Jackson, Jackson. that everybody else did, right? And Goldstein uh, for classical. <laughs> yes, we did. And we so, read it and we did the homework set, same problems, same Same book. problems. Same right. answer. So <laughs> whether you get them right at Stanford or at Hampton, you learned the same amount that there was to learn from solving the problem. So. It, it is unfortunate, you know, that we think of some institutions as second tier, um, but th this whole sort of power structure in this country is set up like that to make us believe that some things are better than others and certainly white things are better than black things. So white institutions are better than black institutions. But that doesn't mean we have to fall into the trap of believing it. Right. You know, and people like you and I, we show every day that having, and, and others, our colleagues, that having a degree from an HBCU is as valuable as a degree from any other institution. You can go just as far. And it's really nice to see now, um, you know, when they're talking about politicians like Andrew Gillum and, and in Florida, they say he's a FAMU graduate, right? You know, or uh, show the HBCU affiliation. I think it does a lot um, for our institutions if we proudly say we're a product of that institution. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. They contributed to to our success and made us who we are. And you know, we are not chopped liver. No, <laughs> the thing that. 
I find to be, you know, ironic about the whole STEM conundrum and HBCUs is the fact that most of them, they were yeah. founded for STEM. And so now we're, they're not suitable, <laughs> even though that was their origin. How yeah. is that possible? I don't know, but I guess, um, I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll figure it out one day. But back to your role at NSF, um, your programs, I know they make a difference. Tell me in your own words how you feel about what you do. I know you're passionate about it, but your programs are effective. Can you give me your perspective on what would be the landscape if your programs went away? Some institutions would not be as affected. You know, there are some institutions like I'm um, thinking of North Carolina A&T that could probably survive if there were no HBCU up program or no Centers for Research and Excellence in Science Technology program and, and get funding elsewhere. They even get now funding from the state. So some institutions would be fine, but out of the 101 accredited HBCUs, I would say about 60 to 70 of them are struggling. They're struggling financially um, due to past injustices and inadequate funding. You know, you can't just make up 100 years of neglect, 150 years of neglect by giving somebody $5 million and saying, now here you go, mm -hmm. uh, and pat them on the back and say, they are there, you know, do much better. The reason these institutions struggle has a lot to do with these historic um, issues, mainly inadequate and unjust funding. So for those institutions, if my program went away, it would make the difference between do they have scholarship support for their STEM students or not? Mm. Can they equip a new lab or not? Can they be as competitive in teaching as other institutions? Can they have new teaching pedagogies and new ways of teaching? Can they involve their students in research? Can the faculty do some research? Mm. You know, this is the only program probably that funds faculty at the small liberal arts HBCUs, mm. um, can they, and, and a lot of them do, so let me give you the, the example of Harris Stowe I was talking about oh, yes. uh, mm -hmm. a while ago. Missouri, they're in Missouri, uh, right across from Ferguson, Missouri. 10 years ago, up to 10 years ago, the state of Missouri said they could not have STEM programs because it would duplicate the programs at white institutions. So they did not allow them to have STEM programs. They had a math education and a biology education program, but nothing else. They got funding from HBCU up. They got one of those $3 million grants. With that, they started a biology program and a math program, and now they're starting an environmental science program. The state of Missouri approved it. Um, with that funding, they established the programs. They got students in the program. They are now ranked number 40 in the nation in producing African-American math majors. That's out oh. of 4,000 institutions, they're ranked number 40. That's After cool. just 10 years of offering 
a math degree, right? Mm. So that's the impact HBCU up has. I'll give you another example. Mississippi Valley State mm -hmm. University in the Mississippi Delta is in an era, area where 90% of the high school teachers who teach math don't have a math degree or haven't taken any math classes. Wow. So how prepared do you think those students are when they come to Mississippi Valley State, right? If they had teachers who don't know any math. So they have an implementation project where not only are they working with their students to catch up, but they're working with the local teachers to be certified in math. Those are the kind of projects I fund from my program. Those are just two examples. I can have them all across the country. And those are the institutions who would really hurt if there were no HBCR program or no similar programs that mm -hmm. fund what they do. It's not like we're funding things uh, for them to make things nicer or better. We're funding them so they can do the basic mm -hmm. necessary work they need to do, you know. Yes, and it's, uh, a, it's incredible and it's amazing to see some of the outcomes from your programs and you know some of the students that are graduating from them and becoming successful at whatever they're doing whether they stay in in the pure science or math or whatever they're yeah they study but they use it they're using those skills <laughs> whatever they're doing they're yeah. using those skills yes and they um, are passing on knowledge to hopefully the next generation or their children or whatever they're doing so there has been definite value in the work that you've done at NSF, and you're going to be a resource that it will be sorely missed when you retire. So. <laughs> I just have to work between now and then to have somebody sitting in this very chair who, um, who will do it better than I did it. Um, that's, that's what awesome. I'm looking for. No, 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 that is quite possible. Somebody will sit in here with some new ideas who will move. Because we can always do things better and move things to the next level. Um, that's the person I'm looking for. So um, <laughs> the challenge to, to some of your listeners if they're looking to do this kind of work. All right, listeners, you heard it here. Dr. Claudia Rank <laughs> is, is looking for that person who is willing to put in 29 hours a day <laughs> to make sure that our STEM programs that our HBCUs are taken care of, they're getting the resources they need, and they're giving the students the opportunities that exist while they're doing their studies as undergraduates or graduate students going to those conferences, presenting that research, doing that poster or that talk, is, is just phenomenal to be able to be one of those students to do that. I've done it, she's done it, and also it's phenomenal to be there watching a student that you have worked with to present some work. It's just phenomenal. You know, my favorite event is coming up. It's called the Emerging Earn. Research National Conference, Earn, right? Yes. Uh, funded by the HBCUR program, mm -hmm. largely, with some co-funding from others. There are a thousand students, undergraduate students, mostly from minority-serving institutions. Now, not mm -hmm. this. it's an inclusive conference, but you will never go any place else in this country, or very few places, 
mm-hmm. where you see a thousand undergraduate students, mostly black and brown students, sitting in the room excited about yes. STEM, listening to a speaker, and the next day presenting their research. That's like a powerful, that conference is like where I go every year to, to sort of recalibrate and recharge. This is why we're doing what we're doing. You know, we, we, we designed it so, because oftentimes when, when students apply to a conference in their, their freshman year, say, you know, their, their abstracts don't get accepted. Mm-hmm. So we pretty much accept every abstract unless it's absolutely not acceptable. <laughs> and uh-huh. um, give them that first conference experience. And then we hope after that, they go to some disciplinary conference and, you know, they gain the confidence Mm-hmm. To, to do that so it's almost sort of a training ground but it's it's a wonderful experience dr rankins when are you coming back on the show <laughs> <laughs> anytime you invite me back i'm happy to come back there's so many things we can talk about there are so <laughs> many things we can talk about i wish we could talk about them all tonight and um but the work that you've done and that you do like i said is just amazing and um, making sure that that our schools are getting what they need based on what is available. And and I know you have the monumental task of deciding who gets what and all of that based yeah. on what's available, but you're doing a great job and you've always done a great job. and You've always been a great colleague to work with. I just thank you for uh, doing the show with me tonight. I look forward to having you back. Is there anything you'd like to say in closing? I'm just um, honored that you asked me to be on the show, Trina, and I'll be happy to come back at any time. And I don't know what else to say except, um, you know, it's sort of my life's work to work on behalf of HBCUs, to work on behalf of HBCU faculty and students. And I firmly, firmly believe in these institutions. I firmly believe that there is a role for them in this day and age. And you know, two years ago, that was a a little bit harder to justify than it is right now. Mm -hmm. Everybody sees again right now why it is so important that we provide a safe space for our students. Mm -hmm. And the HBCU is that safe space still for black students. Not all universities are safe spaces for them. It, it hurts my heart when I read about the kind of things that students face at some institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the racism they're exposed to. Um, so yeah, that's why I'm a believer in HBCUs. They, they, they do a great job in educating students. I'm, uh, an alumna of an HBCU, I firmly believe I learned there as much as I would have learned any place else. But as I told you in my story, I didn't get a PhD from the other place, right? Mm -hmm. I was no dumber at ODU or smarter than I was at Hampton. It truly was the environment at Hampton that made the difference. Well, that's so that's awesome. why I'm sold on HBCUs. <laughs> well, that's a great reason to be sold <laughs> on HBCUs. Well, thank you for joining me here on Beyond the Classroom. 
And uh, listeners, uh, we're signing off with Dr. Claudia Rankins at National Science Foundation. And she is one of the caretakers and uh, watching over our HBCUs and making sure that our STEM students are getting some funding for scholarships and research and traveling conferences and summer programs and all of those things to help them be successful students. Thank you, Dr. Rankins. Thank you, Trina. That was the nicest thing anybody ever said. Thank I you. Good night. <laughs> all right. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye.